You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 AM and 930 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Good morning. I'm Jim Dish with the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office, joining you on Relevant Radio 950 and 930 AM. Every Saturday morning, we bring you highlights of our Catholic Chicago radio programs that air throughout the week. Our Voice of Charity radio program kicked off the new year with a preview of the upcoming Divine Affair. Co-hosts Michael Baer and Noreen Russo welcomed a group of guests into the studio to discuss the importance of this event to the Catholic Charities Self-Sufficiency Programs. So as we kick off another new year, another new decade, and another wasted Chicago Bears football season... Uh, we decided to instead spend a little time this morning discussing another special event that's happening in Chicago this January. That's right, Michael. Um, the 19th annual Catholic Charities Divine Affair will be held on Sunday, January 26th from 2 to 6 p.m. at the Union League Club of Chicago. This festive event is the perfect anecdote to January to showcase more than 250 wines and craft beers from around the world, plus lots of gourmet hors d'oeuvres Yum. and desserts. <laughs> also, returning this year is a hugely popular beer tasting room and live and silent auctions. And the proceeds from this event go towards Catholic Charities self-sufficiency programs in Cook and Lake Counties. And we'll get into a little more about uh, those vital programs here in a few minutes um, that we offer to help people in need. But um, I wanted to tell you that having attended Divine Affair last year as a volunteer, um, it was a lot of fun. And it's an easy way to enjoy learning more about beer and wine from pros and also get a chance to help Catholic Charities in a very important way on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, it's the, it's the best event. Um, and we are very excited to have with us today two gentlemen whose work will be highlighted at this year's Divine Affair. We have Joe Gluns of Lewis Gluns Wine and Kevin Bratt. Wine director of Joe's Seafood Prime Steak and Stone Crab Restaurant. They each have a long and distinguished career as experts and entrepreneurs in the expansive, er, expansive beverage and food industry. Also jo- joining us today is Dave Gardner, who is the director of regional and program special events for Catholic Charities. Dave will share with us how the proceeds of Divine Affair will help Catholic Charities clients in a number of important ways. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Dave, uh, let's start with you. How did the Divine Affair come to be a key event in Chicago? Well, uh, this is our 19th year, and um, uh, the Gluns family... uh, have been uh, great supporters of Catholic Charities, and Joe and Helen Gluns uh, of Gluns Wine, Lewis Gluns Wines, uh, 19 years ago, uh, fell in love with our self-sufficiency programs, and they said, you know what, we would like to do more to, uh, to, to support the families that come to Catholic Charities for help. And so uh, they're in the wine business, and mm-hmm. uh, it's just a per- we have this gathering of our, of our uh, different vintners that come in once a year. Why don't we pull that all together for a benefit event. So that's how it all started uh, 19 years ago. Wow, amazing. 
And how has it evolved over the years? I think that first one was uh, we might have had two, maybe 250 guests uh, attending, and mm-hmm. uh, now it's grown to over four, uh, and we're hopefully for uh, over 500 people to attend this year. It's uh, it's just been uh, an incredible day, uh, and it really is. Uh, you know, four wonderful hours of tasting an incredible array of of wine and uh and now with the addition of i think for the last seven years um uh, some craft and imported beer uh it's it's been really really uh, an energized afternoon that's great um and what are the services that catholic charities provides in the self-sufficiency programs well catholic charities and and self-sufficiency i mean we are helping families with children uh, who are in need. And in um, the Family Self-Sufficiency Program in Lake County um, works with people to um, get uh, with housing and uh, job training, uh, counseling. Uh, people come to and families come to Catholic Charities for when they're, they're just – needing a little bit more assistance to to get back on track and attain self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, that program uh, lasts – people can be involved in that program for up to five years, and it's just really, really uh, invigorating and, and uh, very successful in bringing uh, people back to self-sufficiency in Lake County. We also have in Cook County our New Hope uh, uh, housing program, which um, – uh, same concept. It's uh, people can and families can be with children can be involved in this program for up to two years, and again, job training, um, uh, working with uh, families through a number of problems that and issues that they may have, but they receive rental assistance so that they can stay in this apartment uh, in apartments or housing for up to 2 years while they're and usually uh, they fin- finish the program with money in the bank possibly uh, uh, if they've been seeking a, a further education a, a degree and uh, go on to and and a good solid job and that's the whole uh, really what we're hoping for beautiful yeah and the alumni of if i can add the alumni of this program over the years has just been unbelievable, uh, turning out nurses, uh, turning out uh, legal aids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a, a uh, an attorney uh, and uh, one person that's become a doctor, if I remember correctly. Wow. Joe, Joe has been, uh, he's been to the, uh, every year up in Lake County, they have a, a celebration uh, a ceremony of, of graduation. And uh, you, you've seen that, and it's been, it is inspiring. And my father, Joe Glenn Sr., who kind of worked with Dave and uh, Catholic Charities to get this started, uh, he's not one, uh, a guy to cry much. Uh, you know, he, he, he <laughs> cries more in laughter uh, than, uh, than emotion. Uh, in in a uh, grateful way, and at this graduation, uh, every single time, uh, I'm, I would say he cries like a baby. Uh, he's <laughs> just in the emotion of excitement and amazement of yeah. what this uh, yeah. program turns around. It is just what emotionally caught him and uh, hooked him on uh, on really supporting a great program like this. 
So why this time of year then, when we all want to hibernate? Uh, why do we have a <clears throat> Why do we have a beer and a wine event at this time of year? Well, there's nothing else to do in January. I mean, it's the weekend between the final football playoffs and the Super Bowl, and so people are sitting around. But really, uh, the. Uh, Lewis Glenn's Wines has uh, on on that Monday uh, every day every year they bring together their uh, um, uh, the people that they distribute wine to. Lewis Glenn's Wines is a distributor uh, here in Chicago has been for oh my goodness over a hundred year hundred and thirty years and uh, and so that is kind of what tipped this off with Joe and Helen was saying we've got all these people coming in for the weekend so let's have them just come in for a day a day earlier. And we'll turn this into a benefit on Sunday, and then on Monday, uh, the uh, the following day is is uh, the wine, uh, Lewis Glenn's wines industry event, if you will. So, and Joe, if did I if I yeah, we if actually I, started. We'd have all these suppliers in to work with all of our uh, and taste all of our customers as a little thank you for the end of the year uh, of all the business, and they would end up uh, having this big party, and they turned it into a charity event. Dave's getting ready to wrap up his tenure here at Catholic Charities. He's been here for, what, 20-plus years, right? That's true. That's amazing. He doesn't look like it. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he looks like a newbie. But maybe you could just tell us a little bit of the significance for you as you're set to retire. What's the significance to this event as being one of the last events that you're going to be managing and being, being part of? Well, it was – well, yesterday was my birthday, and I, so I reached, uh, <laughs> I reached my 66th birthday. And, uh, but I could not walk out the door without uh, – uh, Seeing this event uh, through one that was uh, when I started at Catholic Charities as uh, twenty plus years ago, there were six events, and now there's well over twenty, and now I think maybe thirty. So, and it's not my fault, but <laughs> but we have uh, a lot of money has been raised in support of of a wide variety of Catholic Charities programs. But this event is a true place in my heart. Um, it's just uh, I, I've been engaged with it from its inception, and uh, so it's very special. And I certainly wanted to stay here uh, and see uh, for my final event, which will be what um, six days before I, I walk out the door. Yeah. Well, from all of us, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Oh, it's Big been time. it's been great. It's a, it's a wonderful the Catholic Charities family and what they do is is it's incredible. Thanks, Dave. Um, Joe, your parents, Joe and Helen, started the Divine Affair 19 years ago, and throughout your life and your extended family, you've been incredibly generous with your time, talent, and treasure, giving to Catholic Charities in many different ways. Uh, And in 2015, your father appointed you as president of the important and important distribution house founded by your great-grandfather in 1888. That's not 1988. That's 1888. Uh, What was your reaction upon assuming this role? Um, I have to be honest with you. You know, we grew up, um, you know, always working in the family business. So it was uh, really not that big of a (laughs) wow uh, thing. Uh, especially when uh, my father said, you know, Joe, you're going to like you to be take over the role as president. Uh, I'm going to change my role to owner. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it really was no different. It was just a, a movement of uh, 
a progression, no, but, uh, you know, being able to uh, take on uh, what my great-grandfather started. Mm-hmm. Uh, grand, my grandfather built significantly from the House of Gluns uh, up to uh, starting the Im- important distribution business, uh, and then my father starting the wine business uh, and importing. Um, it, it's just been a great honor uh, more than yeah. anything else yeah. as a fourth-generation uh, family business run owner. Yeah. And what's your favorite part? Of the job. Well, I, I have to say one of my favorite parts is, is doing what I don't get to do much as president anymore <laughs> is, is actually getting out of the office and getting to see uh, customers like Kevin uh, and a lot of our fantastic customers throughout the state. And then even more importantly is getting out to see and meet new suppliers, uh-huh. winery reps yeah. um, all over the world. Uh, so that is uh, – it. that's very cool for sure. And – when did you get involved with the Divine Affair? And it was a uh, what do they call that volunteering? Uh, <laughs> yes. Voluntold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, in uh, I think the very first year there was no question uh, who was that everybody it was all hands on deck. Uh, I've got nine siblings and uh, mm. all of us were involved. <laughs> so uh, it was uh, from the get go for sure. And uh, watch Dave uh, really uh, work this thing unbelievably. Uh, in partnership with uh, with my parents and uh, and they had uh, a couple other uh, fantastic uh, people helping out uh, initially uh, and then it's just kept growing uh, consistently. So. Wow, nine kids, many hands make light work, right? <laughs> that was that was the original idea. <laughs> um, we understand that the Lewis Glen wine will be releasing lots of new wines at the Divine Affair. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so every year we bring on, uh, you know, some new wines. You know, like anything, you have uh, wineries mm-hmm. that uh, change their focus uh, and they come and go. And um, this year I th- there's a lot of different wines every year. Uh, and this one, it was about two weeks, three weeks before the uh, f- before the uh, New Year's holiday that uh, right after Christmas that we end up getting a champagne that I tasted uh, in, uh, in Paris in uh, – I think it was in oh no I'm sorry it was in Dusseldorf Germany in uh, May uh, previously and uh, we finally got it in the warehouse after a long delays uh, on docks and so on and so forth and uh, Champagne Jeeper uh, which has a really cool story behind it uh, dating back to World War II. Uh, and uh, the f- humorous thing is the first time we agreed to taste it uh, and brought it on uh, that uh, later that night, we actually went into uh, Joe Stonecrab uh, with huh. Kevin, which who is extremely busy as always, uh, <laughs> and uh, we tasted it out there. Mm, nice. Well, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the beer side of things. Uh, I know you're going to have a tasting room for craft beer, and we only have a, a minute here before our next break, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, that tasting room and maybe some trends in craft beer industry moving Absolutely. Uh, a lot to pack into a minute. But yeah. the, uh, <laughs> my uh, cousins, uh, Jack Lund's family, uh, has Lewis Glund's Beer, a separate company that uh, drive from the same place. Uh, they have been hosting and supporting the the Divine Affair for a while. And they always have a great selection of microbrews uh, as well as some beers, uh, including Beck's, uh, that they've uh, had forever. Uh, beers from Japan, uh, beers from the neighborhoods they'll uh, – Definitely have a Maplewood Brewery there, uh, one of my favorite uh, hazies. Uh, Be- Beguile. Beguile. Yeah, Beguile is definitely there. And, and it's just been a great consistent grouping of beers that's uh, heavily attended. I volunteered at the Wine Grab Station last year. 
Um, but I only found out after the fact that Kyle MacLachlan was in the house. Uh, <laughs> Kyle MacLachlan of Dune and Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks and Portlandia fame. Uh, apparently he has a winery. He was there. And uh, I know he, I think he's not going to be there this year, but I wanted to know how you could help me become best friends with him. Is that possible? <laughs> so the winery is pursued by Bear, and we, uh, the wines will be there. And uh, Kevin is your direct link. Okay. Uh, Kevin right. Brad. So Kevin, we need link. to chat when this is <laughs> done. Today. All right, great. I don't know about the best friends thing, but we can work on it. Like second best okay. friends. Yeah. All right, we'll great. So, Kevin, uh, you are a well-known, or you're well-known as the concept wine director of Joe's Seafood Prime Steak and Stone Crab Restaurants, a hugely popular Let Us Entertain You restaurant here in Chicago, Washington, D.C., and in Las Vegas. Can you share with our listeners a bit about how you became involved in this industry and what you find rewarding? Yes. I got started in restaurants back in the Pacific Northwest many years ago, um, waiting tables, and I uh, always enjoyed being on the floor, talking to guests. And back then, I didn't really think that restaurants would actually be a, a full-time career. It was just something that I would do to pay bills, have a little extra cash. And um, when I relocated to Chicago, I was still working in restaurants, um, still helping to pay bills, not really thinking that it was going to be a full-time career for me. Mm -hmm. And I was attending Columbia College here in Chicago, and I started working at a restaurant as a server um, and moved into a managerial role, which I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed being on the floor, talking to people. Um, hours flew by, money was good. And being in restaurants, you also have to know a bit about beverage, and that was the fun part of it because, you know, <laughs> yeah. tasting beverages <laughs> is always very fun. So I began to study independent, independently, um, reading as much as I could, attending events uh, that like Joe uh, would put on with Gluns and other local distributors, and really found that that was um, my calling, if you will. And yeah. so um, I took over a beverage managerial role for a restaurant that I was working at before Joe's, and then when the position opened up for Joe's, um, I threw my threw my name into the hat and uh, was lucky enough to land that position, and that was 19 years ago. So I've grown with <laughs> wow. Joe's yeah. um, from Chicago to Las Vegas and D.C., as you mentioned. Wow, that's awesome. And this is your first time attending the Divine Affair, and I understand that you're going to be doing a special wine appreciation seminar. What would what's included in that? Oh, is that true? This is news to me. <laughs> <laughs> a seminar of some kind. A sense of humor, obviously. Yeah, of course. I think we will probably start with uh, like a wine 101, um, something that applies to everybody. So if if you know a bit about wine, mm -hmm. uh, we'll have something for you. If you know nothing about wine and you just like uh, to taste wine, we'll you know teach you a few things, and then we'll just kind of take cool. a little trip around the world talking about. Uh, some wine-producing regions from the U.S. all the way down to, let's see, South America. Uruguay. And Uruguay. Yeah, I read a little bit earlier you were talking about the bright future of Australian wine, and that made me think of the fact that that continent is pretty much entirely on fire right now. Um, and I'd also read recently that there's some movement going on in wineries in California because of how climate has changed up to the Pacific Northwest and stuff like that. So how are those changing climates affecting wine around the world? And what, if you're a wine lover, what should you be doing to advocate for you know, the, the support and good wine? 
Yes. First, of course, all of our thoughts and everything are with the people of Australia right now. I think mm-hmm. I saw on the news last night that they received some much-needed relief in the form of rain yeah. yesterday, and hopefully oh, yeah. will last for a few days. But um, the overall devastation in Australia is is pretty intense. But um, you're opening up a, a larger conversation about people's opinions and what um, everybody might think about the ideal region for growing wines as right. it, appeal, as it mm-hmm. applies to the next 10 years or 100 years. But um, it'll be interesting to see. I feel like I'm seeing a lot of uh, wineries move further north um, as we get up to um, the uh, Canadian-U.S. border. We're seeing a lot more wineries open up there uh, as things do seem to heat up a little bit further south. So how does the United States rank internationally in terms of our wine consumption and production? Where do we fall? That's a good question. I think um, we're definitely in the top five for overall consumption per person. Um, but in the last nice. 10 years, I think that we've seen the amount, the rate of consumption or the amount of consumption of wine in the United States grow more than almost any other country in the world. Wow. So like what's a big trend right now then in wine? Not just consumption, but what, what are we maybe looking forward to in the future as what could be popular or how things are going to change? I think a current trend, especially with the the looming tariffs, I think might have a lot to do with this too, is um, the amount of um, newer regions that maybe you haven't heard of before. Um, France and Italy, of course, are incredibly popular, but uh, smaller places, uh, South America, as Joe said, Uruguay, Brazil, um, lesser known regions may be coming onto the scene with uh, less expensive wines. Uh, Slovenia is definitely <clears throat> one that is you know, right next to Italy, just north of Croatia, uh, both popular wine regions that is just kind of blowing up right now. Sure. Well, guys, we certainly appreciate your involvement in the event and your being here with us today. Um, Dave, if any of our listeners want to support Divine Affair, by attending or becoming a sponsor, what is the best way for them to get involved? Well, we are just two weeks away, and uh, I, if you go to our website, uh, catholiccharities.net uh, forward slash divine, you can register and, and purchase uh, your tickets to attend. And I want to make note that we have a special flash sale going on right now, and for the next until 8 o'clock Wednesday morning, uh, you can re- reserve your spot for uh, $125, and then after that, it goes up to $150 per person, uh, leading up to the event. Uh, and you can and all walk-ins are always welcome. And we're at uh, the Union League Club, 65 West Jackson, Sunday, the 26th, from 2 until 6 p.m. You can get more information on the Divine Affair and learn about all the much-needed programs and services of Catholic Charities by going to catholiccharities.net. Clarissa Alantera, Senior Coordinator of Children's Ministry for the Archdiocese of Chicago, hosts our Lifelong Journey program. She visited with Eric Wandre, Senior Coordinator of Young Adult Engagement, about School of the Spirit. Here's a highlight. We've been talking a little bit about Formation in Young Adulthood and the new formation initiative that his team is going to be launching just in a matter of weeks, right? January, mm-hmm. January-ish is when you guys kind of yep. kick off. Uh, so tell us a little bit about why this experience for young adults, like what about this makes mm-hmm. it different than what else is like, what else they would have or what yeah. else is out there? Yeah. Um, I think to answer that question, I'm going to pull in a little bit of my own personal experience. Um, so just a little bit of background on, on me. Uh, I spent most of my twenties in an international religious order, uh, before discerning out and discerning a call 
towards uh, lay ministry. Um, in this in this order, um, there was a very heavy emphasis on academic preparation. Um, so I spent most of my twenties just studying, uh, and ended up with um, a, a master's degree in philosophy and also a few years of theology under my my belt. Um, and when I left, when I discerned out of seminary, um, I had this impression, this idea that all you need is a really good argument, <laughs> a really good reason to convince people that the, that the faith is true. And I was basing that, that assumption on a quote from First Peter, where... Peter says, be ready to give a reason for your faith. Um, so uh, I actually came to Chicago with that idea. It's like all I need is, is to have the ability to you know, go through Thomas Aquinas' five proofs for the existence of God. And if, if I could do that with people, if, they, if they'll just listen, then it's gonna, they're going to convert. Like how can you argue with those and this proofs. isn't that ta- this isn't that long ago, right? No, actually, this is just a couple years ago. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and um, I, I also um, was very big on the beauty of the Catholic Church, mm. the artistic beauty, the liturgical beauty, the musical beauty that all this um, that's part of our Catholic heritage. And I was also um, thinking that if we could just bring people to experience this beauty they're going to convert. Um, over the past couple years, I've, I've come to realize that if somebody already has their mind made up, you can argue until you're, you're blue in the face. Mm-hmm. You can debate until you're blue in the face. They're not going to change their mind. And the same goes for exposing people to the artistic beauty of the Catholic Church if somebody has already made up their mind that they're an atheist, they'll come and they'll appreciate the beauty of the Catholic Church, the, the beauty of the Sistine Chapel, for example, um, the beauty of Gregorian chant, and they'll appreciate it and they'll enjoy it, but they're not necessarily going to change their mind and think that there is a loving God. Um, so I had, to, I had to kind of wrestle with these assumptions that I had and I came to the conclusion that, yes, it's important to be ready to give a reason for your faith. It's important to point out the, the beauty of the Catholic Church. And these, those two things can play a role in conversion. But at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to bring people to um, accept Jesus Christ into their lives is personal encounter. Mm-hmm. And School of the Spirit is meant to help young adults um, encounter our Lord in a new and profound way and equip them to bring other young adults to similar encounters with our Lord. Nice. Uh, can you share with me a time maybe recently or maybe not so recently mm-hmm. where you had one of those encounters that wasn't really formation based or, you yeah. know, was just like a true like witness of like God just 
completely like working in your life? Sure. Yeah. Um, I will preface this example um, by saying that when the Holy Spirit works in our lives, um, he doesn't work within our paradigms. <laughs> and uh, he can really, he can work in ways that are, are just to us are weird, don't really make sense. Mm-hmm. And we see that um, throughout the course of church history, going all the way back to the Acts of the Apostles. Um, you look at Pentecost, for example. Uh, the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they went out, started preaching around Jerusalem, and people literally thought they were drunk. Um, the Holy Spirit works in a way that kind of pushes our comfort zones and breaks paradigms and is hard to comprehend. Um, about about four, four and a half years ago, um, it was actually when I was still in seminary, I was at a point in my own spiritual life where I was looking for more. Um, I was, I wanted, I wanted more of God. I wanted to be closer to him. And so in my own personal prayer, I just started asking for that. I, I asked, I started inviting the Holy Spirit to be more active in my life. And, um, there was one morning when, um, I was, I was praying in my, in my room at the seminary and it was just, I was by myself. It was quiet. And, um, all of a sudden I was overcome with a sense of God's presence. And it's hard to explain these things, but the best way to describe it is I was, I had like a physical sensation that was both warm and tingly at the same time. And, I know this is going to sound weird, <laughs> Go for but it. like I said, the Holy Spirit works in weird ways. Um, my tongue started moving on its own, and I began speaking in tongues. It never happened before, but in that moment, I started speaking in tongues. Since that moment, um, I've experienced the presence of God in, in similar ways, um, and I've also experienced God speaking to me um, through dreams and through other things. Um, so that encounter with the Holy Spirit really solidified my relationship with God and made me even more convinced that, um, our God is a loving God and he's ready to be close to us. Yeah. He, he doesn't keep us at an arm's length. He wants to be intimately involved in our lives and he wants to speak to us at an uh, on an intimate level, um, and so what we want to do with the School of the Spirit is kind of steward encounters with the Holy Spirit for our young adults. Create times and places where they can experience the power of the Holy Spirit, the intimacy of God, and when people have that personal encounter, that's when the fire is going to be lit, and they're going to want to go out to bring their peers to experience the same thing. Thanks to Clarissa and Eric for their thoughts. Stick around. In a moment, we'll hear about Christian unity, and we'll visit with a person who makes a living reporting on the Catholic Church. Back after a short break. Are you an attorney who's retired or semi-retired from your practice? Catholic Charities welcomes your expertise. 
Whether it's a dispute with a landlord or being the victim of a scam or an issue regarding family law, clients can feel alone in this complex legal system, especially if they're unable to afford an attorney. Our volunteer attorneys answer our legal advice line, offer one-hour consultation, and conduct legal seminars. They are dedicated to informing and empowering low-income individuals as they navigate civil law issues affecting their lives. Come in when your schedule permits and share your knowledge with grateful clients. To learn more about this rewarding volunteer program, please call 312-948-6821. That's 312-948-6821. Thank you for considering Catholic Charities Legal Assistance Team. Are you passionate about helping others? Do you enjoy shopping? Combine both and become a volunteer at Catholic Charities West Region Food Pantry in Cicero. Opportunities are available in weekday, daytime hours for individuals or groups to stock shelves, be personal shoppers, and more. Shifts are flexible, and we would be grateful to work within your schedule. As a food pantry, we rely heavily on volunteers to be able to keep our pantry open to serve our clients. Often the smallest gestures make the biggest difference in the lives of those in need. Gather your family or group of friends and come join our team. See what a positive experience helping at our West Region Food Pantry can be. To sign up, please visit www.ccofchicagovolunteer.com. You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio, 9.50 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. Every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Welcome back to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio, 9.50 and 9.30 a.m. I'm Jim Dish of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office with highlights of local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on 7.50 a.m. Holy Name Cathedral Rector Father Greg Sackowitz and his planning and development assistant Mark Teresi co-hosted a program that focused on Christian unity. Let's take a listen. The International Week of Prayer for Christian Unity is January 18th through the 25th. Our guest in studio the first half hour, Dr. Daniel Olson, Director of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Office of Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs, and Tom Masters, author, editorial director, and member of the Board of Directors for the New, New City Press. Tom is a longtime member of the Focolare a Catholic movement, which helps build a more united world in which people value and respect diversity. And I think we have on phone, am I right? We have on phone Reverend John Armstrong, a pastor for 20 years and author of Your Church is Too Small, Why Unity in Christ's Mission is Vital to the Future of the Church and Costly Love, the Way to True Unity for All the Followers of Jesus. And uh, Reverend Armstrong is a founding member of the initiative, a community which seeks to foster Christian unity through fellowship, prayer, and love. Mark, after his introductions, I think we're ready for a break. <laughs> well, Dan and Tom and John, good morning. Welcome to the program. How are you all doing? Just fine. Wonderful. Thank you. Good to be here. Very well. Thank and John, you. we're calling you by phone, and where are you? Pastor, I'm in, where? I'm in, well, I'm in Carroll Stream, Illinois. 
Okay, you're way, way west out there in the, uh, I think it's the Diocese of Joliet area. That's correct, northwest DuPage County. Exactly. So, uh, first of all, for a moment, Dan, you've been on the program many, many times, and you keep looking younger all the time. And um, plus, I need—I'm getting new glasses, by the way. Is uh, apparently give us a, little, a brief history of the Christian Unity Week. I think it goes back to what 1904. Uh, I believe 1908 is the date that I recall most. But it was an started out as an Episcopal Church, um, Catholic Church endeavor. Um, Father Paul Watts and, and and some various sisters and others gathered together to pray for the unity that we all seek from Christ. The Vatican became involved shortly thereafter. I believe in 1916, um, Pope Benedict XV proclaimed it to be something that the whole church should pray. Uh, it began as a day, but then expanded to an octave, an eight-day um, uh, week of prayer, um, which in uh, the 1993 ecumenical directory was um, promoted as something we should all be doing as Catholics, and other Christians have since become involved since the early stages. And it, it's between the feasts of St. Um, Peter and St. Paul, January 18th through the 25th. And you've been involved with the office with the Archdiocese for how many years now? Uh, over five. Over five? Yeah. Out of curiosity, what did you do before this? <laughs> um, I got my degree at Loyola. I was teaching at various universities, um, Catholic universities, uh, theology. Um, but I did a lot of my research on interchurch families, uh, marriages between Christians of different denominational affiliations. So that led me to the ecumenical office directly in uh, 1993. Tom, what about you? How did you get involved? My wife and I met the Focolari back in the 70s through a friend. And, um, was that through a parish? Or? No, no. It was, now, maybe for a moment, Tom, yeah. explain to listeners more deeply than I did, what is Focolari? Focolari is an ecclesial movement in the Catholic Church that was founded by a group of young women in Trent, Italy, back in the 1940s during World War II. And out of the destruction of the city, they, these were young women, they were in their 20s, um, they turned to reading the Gospels and trying to live the Gospel in the midst of that destruction. And out of that came this movement of people who live uh, especially for one phrase of the Scripture. They, they saw one that they thought, this is what we were born for, which is John 17, 21. Father, may they all be one as you and I are one that the world may believe. And uh, they didn't intend to start an organization, a movement, but it grew kind of organically out of the experience of these young women. And it spread first throughout Italy, then throughout Europe, came to the United States, and actually to North America, the Americas, South America, North America, in the um, 60s. And then throughout the world by the 80s, the Focolari is present and active in about 180 countries around the world right now. And what the, does it look like in Chicago? What does that mean? In Chicago, there is uh, the Focolaris are 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 uh, a Focolari itself. That's an Italian word that means hearth. It's a place where the family gathers, and there are Focolari houses. There is one house in the Chicago area uh, where six young women live who devote their lives especially to, to dialogue, ecumenical and to religious dialogue. That house is in Berwyn. And then there, uh, a, there's a sizable several thousand people, local communities, people who uh, know each other, who seek to live the gospel together. Are there and, communities in the Chicagoland area? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's four or five little group, not, but groups that meet um, 
uh, well, they engage with one another, but they also meet at least monthly to look at the scripture that they're trying to live. And in fact, the scripture passage that that the the movement has chosen for this month is the same one that's chosen as the basis for the prayer for Christian unity, this passage from Acts uh, that they showed us unusual kindness, what Paul said when he was shipwrecked in Malta. And that's so we're trying to live that. What does that mean to show unusual kindness? And now for a moment then, uh, Reverend John Armstrong, you are the founding member of the initiative, a community which seeks to foster Christian unity through fellowship, prayer, and love. When was this founded? Well, I'm going to give you a real, real short version because our time is short. But in, I was a pastor in Wheaton for many years, graduate of Wheaton College, Wheaton Graduate School Seminary. 1991, I had a process of about a 10-year call to vocation to serve the wider church, especially its pastors and leaders. Um, it was exclusively Protestant and particularly evangelical, that calling and that, that context. But in 1992, uh, like the Focolari, the text that transformed my life through visions and experiences that I can't describe here, uh, God called me to the work of of Christian unity. And uh, I knew it was a costly call, but the book that you referenced at the beginning, Your Church is Too Small, I think the significant point for our audience is that a mutual friend of the late Francis Cardinal George gave him the book in 2000. Um, 2009, uh, 2010, and he read the book. And much to my surprise, he wrote me an email and said, would you come to my residence? I want to meet you. This was Cardinal George. This was Cardinal George. Very interesting. So I went and met with, with the ecumenical officer and with Cardinal George in the living room of the, the home there. And uh, we connected. We connected many more times personally. We prayed together. We shared our vision together. I invited him to come to Wheaton College uh, to sit down on a Monday night in the chapel, all people welcome, to have a dialogue about my thesis of John seventeen twenty one as I had written the story, and he accepted it. So on March 26 of 2012, we had that meeting, and uh, to my surprise, the lower level of the chapel was packed. Probably mm. more Catholics came to Wheaton College for an event than in the entire history <laughs> of the school. And uh, it was the beginning of what became a movement and grew— and then as I came towards, I'm 70, so as I came near the idea of retiring and stepping down as the head of an organization with this vision, uh, God led us, and Tom Masters is one of the members of us. He led us through the influence of the Focolari, the influence of our Catholic and Orthodox and Protestant members to form what we call a covenant community. It's like a third order for Catholics to understand what we're doing. But even before I met Cardinal George, some years before, I was introduced to Tom Bama through a Protestant church that wanted us to debate one another. Oh. And so I, I wrote them back and said, I'll be happy to do a public meeting with Father Bama, but I will not debate him. That's <laughs> not my calling. My calling is to seek dialogue for Christians to grow in, in love and in unity and reconciliation. And we turned to debate. It was led by Alan Krzyzewski of Channel 7 oh, Chicago. Oh, sure. Oh, Wonderful yeah. guy. Now, what and, year, and, uh, John, what year was this? This would have been about 2000 five or six. Mm-hmm. So we did that in Naperville, and to make a long story short, I can't think of a better friend in leadership in the Catholic Church among my closest friends than Tom Bama. He's been a confidant, a dear brother, and a, and a counselor and consultant for all these years. And Tom's a good soul, great yeah, priest. Yeah, he really is. 
Any thoughts on that, Dan? Tom? Well, in terms of worship, I mean, that's something that we try to uphold during this week of prayer for Christianity. Christians can pray together in a lot of ways. There's so much we share in terms of our liturgical practices. We tend to focus exclusively on Eucharist at times, but there are many other ways Christians prayer, pray and can pray together. Um, and I think this week highlights that really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do need to pray together for this unity. It will not come about without that. It's not our work. It's the Holy Spirit's work. We need to invoke that spirit whenever we can. Following that conversation, Father Greg and Mark Teresi visited with Michael Lachlan, National Correspondent for America Magazine and host of the new podcast, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. How are you, Mike? Good. Glad to be here. Where, where are you from originally? Uh, so I grew up in Massachusetts, uh, about 30 minutes north of Boston. Uh, spent some time in New England, D.C., and then moved to Chicago about five years ago. Are you a New England Patriots fan? I am. So it's a tough. It's been a tough, uh, tough week. I'll tell you, <laughs> you guys, you guys have been a dynasty. I know. Uh, people say it's good. Uh, humility is good once in a while, but I, I, I expected more. The only more. reason they lost this year: tremendous defense. Brady is Brady through four thousand yards. We didn't have a cast of characters around him like he's had in previous years. Yeah, and now we're waiting to hear what's going to happen next with Brady, right? Right. You think he'll sign? I think he will. I don't think so. Just you, a year. Really? No, I think he's going to move on to another team. Really? Three-year contract. I wish we were the Bears, but it won't be. But I think he's move on. So we better, we better stop, stop How many more years sports. does he have left? He's 40, what, 42 or 43? I think he's 42. The guy. And he was drafted, what, seventh round? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. How uh, long did Blanda last? He lasted till the age, I think, forty-nine. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah. So well, he uh, wants to win another one, but yes, I don't, well, I don't blame him. He's got, he's got the arm still. Yeah. And he stayed healthy this year. So tell us about this podcast of yours, the new podcast, Plague: Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. Sure. Yeah. So this is a new podcast from America Media, uh, the Jesuit magazine where I work, and it's a six-part series, uh, sort of part reporting, part oral history interviewing Catholics who were working on the front lines of the HIV and AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s in the United States. Uh, So basically what happened was I was having dinner a couple years ago with a priest friend, and I was just kind of asking, you know, what had he done in his career uh, early on when I didn't know him? And he told me he was a campus chaplain at a university in Toronto. And this was in the 1980s, and this is when HIV and AIDS was starting to uh, become visible on the scene. So he started a kind of campus support group. And he quickly realized that this was becoming a big thing. There were a lot of people coming to the Newman Center at the university each week because either they were affected by the crisis or they knew other people who were. And it it grew and grew, and he felt like he didn't really know how to respond. And at one point, there was some concern that uh, he was ministering to a population that the church didn't always get along with, the gay and lesbian population. And there was some pushback from some of his bosses, but he kind of dug in and said, no, we have to do this. People are really hurting. Uh, They need our help. And his ministry continued for a number of years. And it was just a part of church history I didn't know much about, but I found fascinating that you had people kind of acting counterculturally, um, serving a community that was very much in need, but not getting a lot of support. So over the last couple of years, I started going through archives. Uh, The National Catholic AIDS Network was an organization that existed uh, in the 80s and 90s. And I just started jotting down names of people who were working in this space. And I reached out and interviewed uh, dozens, close to 100 people, um, have hundreds of hours of audio, and we created this sort of audio documentary that traces 
different priests, nuns, lay people who worked in this space, and I think who still have a lot of stories to tell that we just don't know about now, yet. Now, Mike, I have to ask this question. Um, our listeners can't see, but you are rather young. High school grad, what year? Uh, 2003, so I'm 34. Okay, so you graduated in 2003. I've got sweaters older than you. and um, <laughs> But you have such a fascination in this area. See, Mark and I remember from the 80s mm. the whole AIDS epidemic. It was making national news, world news, headlines and papers everywhere. It became a real scare. And at that point, you were barely born. So what, what was it within you as a young man that so intrigued you to do what you just said you did. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. So part of the exploration of the series is I'm too young to remember that time. And I feel like there's this kind of collective wisdom that I just didn't hear about. Um, mm-hmm. So p- part of my rationale was I've been reporting on the Catholic Church. I'm a journalist, so I'm a reporter um, for the last decade or so. And a big part of my coverage the last few years especially has been the Catholic Church and LGBT issues because that's what's happening in society. And I just thought, you know, these are kind of tricky issues. The church is figuring out how to kind of minister in this space. Maybe there's people who have some insight because they've lived through this time period. I mean, to monopolize and, you know, cut Mark out here, but one question. Yeah. With your age group, what is the biggest myth right now regarding AIDS? That is no longer a problem. Oh, okay. Yeah, so our in our final—so most of the documentary is historical, but in our final episode, which comes out this Sunday— uh, we look at what's happening today, and we actually interview a Jesuit named John Fuller, who's also a medical doctor in Boston. He works in HIV and AIDS, and he says that young people did not live through this history, so that they're not aware that this was going on, um, so that they think HIV is no longer a problem, that it's kind of a thing of the past, but it's actually pretty stubbornly high, and especially the South, uh, but also like big urban centers like Chicago, too. So a difference for me would be we had a dear friend who who died of AIDS um, in fact, he worked in a parish, and the parish was very sympathetic and helpful, And but I saw him die. And, uh, and now we have friends who have AIDS, but uh, the, the medications have allowed them to live quality lives very differently. So how, um, maybe that camouflages the idea that AIDS is still present because we're able medically to at least handle some of the symptoms. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, he, he also said that people view HIV as a sort of chronic but manageable condition, which is true, uh, but he said lives still do change, uh, that it's not something that uh, you, know, you want to get. It's still a, a difficult situation. And then we also explore what's happening in South Africa, which is the country hardest hit by HIV today. And medications have dramatically changed what's happening there, but it still is very much a challenge. Um, especially in some, some other countries. The U.S. is doing pretty well, but other countries still have a hard time ahead. Michael, you're just about the age of our two oldest sons. Uh, how does what you're doing impact your understanding of millennials and their understanding of church? Yeah, so I, I try to make it a point to speak to young adults and uh, kind of explore the issues that they're concerned about. So I'm always paying attention to things like Pew data, like what, what are young people thinking about? And, you know, there's a challenge. I mean, you guys know this, getting mm-hmm. young adults to stay involved in the church. Uh, it's not just the church, it's institutions in general. Young adults tend not to be joiners. Um, but what, what I find interesting is there is this hunger out there for both a kind of spiritual transcendent uh, space because mm-hmm. we're so we connected to our phones and uh, computers, but also I think to see that the church is out there doing, um, you know, on the side of good, speaking up for those with no voice. So I think I see a lot of young people responding to the church's um, 
teaching on migrants, for, for example. It's mm-hmm. something that's in the news a lot. Um, homeless issues, um, kind of things that where people need, a, need help and need someone to speak up for them. I think young people are responding to what's a very real and powerful Catholic presence. Now, the Pope understands that because either his folks are telling him or – and you have this book called The Tweetable Pope, A Spiritual Revolution in 140 Characters. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so that was, uh, that was a fun experience. Uh, this book came out a few years ago. I actually had an opportunity to hand a copy to the Pope when wow. I was in Rome. You uh, handed it to him? I did, yeah. We were, um, <laughs> this was back in 2015 uh, during the Synod on the Family, and I was there covering it. And I had a chance during one of the coffee breaks to meet with the Pope and tell him about the book. And, How exciting. Uh, yeah, I was trying to explain to him what Twitter was. He also, <laughs> despite being very popular on Twitter, has a difficult time kind of comprehending what exactly it mm-hmm. does. So he said he was very impressed that I found something of value in his tweets. So that's, and then uh, what, is, what is the book about then? So the book is about his tweets. Uh, so what about I did was, his tweets. Yeah, I went through his Twitter account, basically two and a half, three years of data, downloaded everything. And examined, like, what are the things that this pope cares about? He's yeah. choosing to connect with, uh, it was at the time, 40 million people around the world in nine different languages. Like, what, what is, messages are he putting out there? What are his top three themes that you found? Yeah, so some, it's interesting. Some you would expect, like he talks about Jesus a lot, which makes sense. He's the Pope. Um, he talks about uh, immigration a lot. Oh, what a coincidence. Yeah, yeah I mean, he's, he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. But th- there's other things, too, that I found interesting. Um, he tweets about sports quite a bit. He kind of sees the power of sports to bring people together. Wow. So a lot of soccer. He's a soccer fan, so that makes sense. Of course, you're coming from Argentina, huge soccer. Are you kidding? South America? Yeah, exactly. That'd be like our American football. Yeah, and so he's like tweeting about the power of sports to bring people together. Does he give any indicators what teams he's in support of? He never has. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I know, because early on he had that chance to watch Argentina come in second. Is that right? What to Germany. Germany, that's right. In the World Cup. Oh, yeah, so that's uh, the two popes. Have you guys talked about that movie? Oh, yeah, so they. I, no, I've not seen. Have you, you seen haven't, the movie? I have. Yeah, uh, it's a how great movie. How much is fact? How much is fiction? So actually, yeah, America has a great article about this on our website. Um, it's a lot of fiction, mm-hmm. but it kind of I think humanizes both Pope Benedict and Pope Francis in a way that I think kind of could help bring the church together in a way. Now, who are the two uh, characters again? The two, I mean, the Pope, but who are the uh, Anthony the, uh, Hopkins and Jacoby? Derek and I heard Jacobi. they both did a fantastic job. I thought it was great. Yeah, I was really moved by it. And it was kind of like a two-hour ad for the beauty of Catholicism. It was just a very just great to have a positive story out there. Yeah, uh, two great men, very different. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I heard nothing but raves about. It. It's a movie I want to see. No, I di- I digress for a moment. But I read an article and. They had to replicate the Sistine Chapel. They couldn't. Oh, I didn't know they that. couldn't use the chapel. Oh, really? So they created these transparencies that they put on white huh. plaster to replicate it because they thought it had to look pretty accurate. It looked pretty good, I thought. And then when they dissembled it, people got you know different crew members and got a piece of the chapel, uh, but it's on plaster, so you had to be able to carry it and move it. But, wow! Yeah, it was very authentic how they tried to replicate. Uh, all the sites. But they were not allowed into the Sistine Chapel for uh, taping. No, and they also replicated the room that the Pope waits at, you know, once oh, yeah. he's elected. And that didn't they have a pizza scene or something? Yeah, there's having... a scene where they share a pizza. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let me give a plug. Uh, there's a podcast America produces called Jesuitical, and they have an interview with Jonathan Price, who played oh, Pope Francis. One, oh, uh, right, Jonathan So he Price, talks a little sorry. bit about that experience and 
what it's been, he kind of looks like Pope Francis and how people have does been, look like been recognizing him. So, yeah, Jesuitical uh, Jonathan Price interview is worth listening to. Again, going back to that book of yours, uh, what else does the Pope talk about in terms of that Twitter, Jesus and uh, issues for the young people? Yep, and then uh, what, what I found interesting is there is a lot of um, discussion or kind of lines taken from speeches that they publish on his account, uh, but you also kind of get a sense of what he thinks is important that day. Uh, so this is kind of an older example now, but uh, when I was writing the book, uh, there was a lot of discussion about kind of social inequality, uh, wealth inequality. And, you know, at the time, there was a lot of books that were rising to the top of bestseller lists, kind of talking about this big disparity between the rich and the poor. And you had a tweet come from the Pope's account that just said, uh, inequality is the root of all social evil. And it was just clear he knew what was going on. So I find it interesting when the Pope is able to kind of tap into what people are thinking about and offer sort of a very short, I call them like 140 character homilies, something that people can think about during the day. You've embraced a career that probably not a lot of folks in your generation have embraced. It's based on research, writing. You've taken, you know, contemporary communication tools. Can you give us a little bit of background of what what attracted you to this uh, position as a journalist? Yeah, it's a good question. I think you're right. There's A lot of people don't even realize that this is a field that exists, that this is a career option. And that was true for me. Uh, so I went to a public high school, uh, kind of went to church each week. But that was my kind of knowledge of the church. So then when I go to a Catholic college, St. Anselm in New Hampshire, I realize that there's this thing called theology that you can study. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a professor who kind of encourages me to become a theology major, which I do, not really knowing much about it. Uh, and I really fall in love with it. And then I go to uh, graduate school. I go to study more theology at Yale. Um, and at that point, I think I'll become a professor. But I kind of changed my mind pretty quickly. I realized it's not my calling. So then I'm kind of lost, though. Like, what am I going to do? I love writing. I love the church. I like writing about religion. And that's when I discover, really, for the first time, that Catholic media is a thing. Um, and someone connects me with America Magazine in New York. Um, so I'm in New Haven. So I'm taking the train down once a week and interning. And just really see that there's this whole world I didn't even know about uh, where you can write about the church. People are having thoughtful conversations, kind of challenging conversations about the role of the church, about how people live their faith in the public square. And I kind of just start exploring that more. And I do a lot of freelancing. And um, there's been there was a good response. And so I, I just keep keep work, keep at it. And eventually I get hired by uh, the Boston Globe uh, when they launched their Catholic website called Crux. And I worked there for a couple of years, and then were you involved when they did their research on the whole church? Issue? I wasn't. So that was, was that uh, was that before you got that there. That was before I got there. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So they uh, the spotlight team uh, writes about clergy sex abuse back in 2001. I start uh, in 2014. Oh, uh, they launched. I forget how young you yeah, were. Sorry, grammar school. <laughs> I know. That's right. Yeah. You were in third grade. Then. Yeah, exactly. What we talked yeah. about. So uh, yeah, so I've been doing. I've been writing um, in this space for about a decade now. So it's just it's been really re- rewarding to get to cover so many different stories because the church kind of covers so much of what, what One we do. One side question, Mike, and that is before you got interested in theology, you went to a public high school. When you were in high school, what were you thinking about doing for your life as a career? That's a good question. Um, I, I've always been interested in politics, and I wanted to work in the political realm. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of do a little bit now because I get to write about politics in the church. Um, yeah, I, it was kind of, I, I always loved reading and writing, uh, and so I figured yeah, out There's a great that. line from a Lennon song, uh, this is the Beatles, which is way before your time. Way that before is, your Way time. before time. Life is what happened, laws making other plans. That it's is so a good true. line, yeah. It's a great line, it's um, in one of his songs, 
and we have this direction in our life, and all of a sudden, you know, something happens, someone comes into your life, this professor, a priest, in theology, and all of a sudden, it sparks an area, the deepest part within you, and look at you today. And you're from a guy from high school, public high school, want to go into politics, and all of a sudden you're a writer of America Magazine with his podcast and writing books on Twitter about the Pope. I find that fascinating. If you want to hear that entire conversation with Michael Lachlan, go to radiotv.archchicago.org. That's where you can listen to all our local Catholic radio programs live or at your convenience, radiotv.archchicago.org. Thanks for listening to us every Saturday morning here on Relevant Radio, 9.50 and 9.30 a.m. I'm Jim Dish for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Have a great weekend, everyone. Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.